0: Welcome to The 7 Deadly Sins of B2B Marketing, the Bono podcast that preaches the tips and tricks of B2B marketing. In each episode, we sit down with B2B marketers and talk about what makes them proud, envious, and angry in the world of B2B. Their revelations will uncover new insights that'll set you on the path to better ways of working.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Seven Deadly Sins of B2B Marketing from Omobono. I'm Simon McAvoy, and I am joined today in the studio by Amy Stankhurst, who is the Senior Marketing Director at the S&P Global Market Intelligence. Um, Amy, welcome.
0: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So, um, Amy, to begin with, can you give me a little bit of an overview of S&P Global Market Intelligence? What do you do? And talk a bit about your journey to getting there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So S&P Global Market Intelligence is one division of S&P Global, which is the parent company. S&P Global Market Intelligence is predominantly a company that helps individuals, companies, and governments make better decisions or, or make decisions with more conviction. And that's by arming them with the essential intelligence, which is the data, the analytics, the information, the news, in a way that is really tailored to their particular job or their particular objectives for their role. And the way we deliver that is through various platforms um, and various solutions. So we're very focused on B2B and focused on companies across a broad range of industries. So. Very much predominantly around financial services, yeah. but we also help other companies across other industries as well, such as healthcare, retail, oil, gas, energy, all the commodities markets as well.
1: That's great. That's great. And you've very much been sort of embedded in financial services for most of your career. I mean, do you want to yes. talk about sort of what your path to getting there was?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I started out by completing a degree in economics quite a few years ago now. When I graduated from the University of Leeds, I knew then I wanted to get into financial services, but I didn't really know the best route to do that or how to get there. I grew up in Yorkshire. Growing up in a seaside town doesn't really give you that much exposure to financial services. So the first thing I did was try to get down to London. And I actually was awarded a placement with a marketing agency. That was quite a few years ago. Now that agency gave me great exposure to lots of different things, but I really did get thrown into all sorts of different projects, from managing golf sponsorships to running modelling competitions and shoots to cold calling, trying to get press coverage for printer cartridges. You know, it was uh, from the, the <laughs> sublime to, to the ridiculous. Some days, I think the best thing about that as well was I got some really great coaching and sort of shadowing of my of the founder of that agency. My boss at the time, it really kind of ignited my passion for marketing through her experience that she could teach me. And once I'd kind of was ready to move on from that role, I ended up in a company that basically executed large projects for different companies and and all marketing-based projects. So, one of the main ones I took on was for Cisco, and that was running their global graduate recruitment marketing, which, again, was a big challenge for me at that time. It was a big step up. It was very international. And it just gave me so much international exposure, which which was really exciting as well.
1: And were you still at that point trying to... Did you still have your eye on financial services yes, at that stage? Was, I did. That, was that the goal still?
0: It was. There was kind of career progression <laughs> was the first objective. And then there was definitely that end goal of getting into financial services. Absolutely. And that took me to my next role, which was actually joining an asset manager based in Mayfair, an American asset management firm that uh, had a fairly small marketing team uh, based in the UK. So we covered the... Market. And um, from there, I I moved on to Dow Jones. So, again, that's pretty much known for being in financial services. You're at the heart of it there. Yeah, to a certain extent. But that was very much on the other side. So, it was selling and marketing to the financial services industry rather than kind of being within it. So, that was my first experience of being in kind of the financial information services side of the industry, which, again, was great. And that was my first time of really managing a a team, a larger team. So I was marketing director there for EMEA again. From Dow Jones, I moved on to BNY Mellon, so back into financial services. And then uh, my next step was in Thomson Reuters, and I was there for about five years. And that was a global role, which I really felt kind of expanded my horizons, which was great.
1: Are there specifics about financial services from a marketing point of view that make it both challenging, but also maybe rewarding? I mean, what is specific about the financial services industry?
0: I think just knowing how kind of fast paced and exciting and how influential it is in everybody's lives is incredibly exciting to be in. I think within marketing, it's being able to take quite a lot of complexity and a lot of jargon and really trying to simplify that and make it into a great kind of customer experience and much more focused on the customer than the actual services you're providing. So I think that's usually our biggest challenge, but also it's great to see kind of, you know, when you build that really compelling messaging or campaigns that really resonate with the audience and and you can see that it's driving really great interest and engagement. It's always very satisfying.
1: Yeah, I can definitely um, uh, sort of attest to that as well. The complexity of financial services is, is a very mm. special challenge that it has, but actually a really interesting one as well. So uh, the sins you've chosen, we're going to start with envy. Yes. Envy, I think this is it's really interesting. This is a conversation that comes up quite a lot in our conversations with B2B marketers, which is this sense of being slightly envious of the B2C world mm. in terms of the data they have, the creative freedom they have, the kind of, I guess, the fame some of those brands have. So, you know are you envious of bc marketers tell us tell me a bit about that
0: i think instinctively my answer would have always been yes because like you say you see these fantastic campaigns out in the market and you just think oh my goodness you know how much creativity and and potentially budgets and uh, resource would they have been able to put into that and really come up with something that's world changing. Sometimes some of these big marketing mm. campaigns really do resonate, you know, just do it for Nike. You know, it's still, it's yeah, everybody yeah. is still on the tip of everybody's tongue. But actually, when you really do think about building campaigns and really uh, what you're trying to achieve, it's at the same thing, you're trying to engage an audience. And if you can come up with a clever way of doing that, that resonates with them in their job rather than in their normal life, it's still really exciting. And it's still kind of the same thing that you're trying to achieve. It's just, you have to take a slightly different approach because you're obviously trying to influence a broader range of people around a specific decision. It might be a more long-term decision. It might be a more complex decision. And it might be a more expensive decision. So we have to partner with them in so many different ways to engage them in different ways and to build that trust and credibility that they need to know they're going to get from a company like ours.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, one of the things we spend quite a lot of time at Omavono talking to our clients about is about kind of creative bravery or creative mm. courage. Are there genuine... Limitations within an organization like yours Mm. around being creatively brave, or or do you think that a lot of those limitations are kind of self-imposed, sort of psychologically, or are are they genuinely there?
0: I think it's a mixture actually, because in my experience, and not just at S and P Global Market Intelligence, but other companies across financial services, there is a need for a strong brand and a strong brand presence. Sometimes you can't be too playful or too risque because actually the underlying messages that you're trying to get across from your company are quite, you know, it's quite a serious thing we're dealing with. So we do need to kind of respect that and definitely be very honest, truthful, fact-based, evidence-based, data-driven, all of those great things. We have a brand team. We have brand guidelines. They tend to be fairly strict around those brand guidelines, but with good reason, because our company's been through a journey in terms of the brand and and where we are now, we really need to embed that brand and, and show our differentiators to the market and really kind of have a, a really strong brand presence. And actually, when we work with our brand team or agencies in, you know, and ask specific questions, I think, to your point, you can then start to have conversations about, well, how do we deliver this more creatively? We've certainly kind of tried to be more creative, especially with our brand experiences, which is more about our events and and webinars and things like that. So the foundation of everything we do is very much about our thought leadership, but we can wrap that in a, a really fun kind of brand experience as well. So it's kind of a multi-level a kind of brand experience. <laughs> I mean,
1: do, 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 can, can you jump into that in a bit of detail? Because yeah. that sounds really interesting. Is there anything that you've found that's worked quite well in terms of encouraging uh, yeah. your, organization to be more, to have more creative courage in this space. I mean, talk about some of the yeah, lessons you've learned there.
0: Absolutely. So this year we built our and delivered our first customer conference. So we called that the essential conference. So that's a big part of our brand message. Uh, this was in Miami in in the in the summer, and it was a phenomenal uh, project to be to be part of. It was the brainchild of of my CMO. Um, she'd got the ball rolling just before I started, and um, we came together across so many different functions and teams to deliver this incredible event that really did do what I just described. So it was about really bringing our customers together, helping them in so many different ways. So whether that was Making sure that we had the best speakers we could possibly get from the industry, give them a really kind of integrated but really exciting and different experience that they maybe wouldn't have had from us before. You know, the three days we spent with them, which is you know a fairly a fairly long amount of time to, for anybody to commit to to a conference like that. But the feedback we had was just that every sort of minute, every hour, we'd really thought about and we'd really thought about how we should be or how we could be building those relationships with the customers. And, you know, we did things from experiences such as Segway tours and cooking lessons and uh, mixology bar. But we also had very, very um, well-respected speakers. A great opportunities for customer networking and just lots and lots of ways to help our customers feel really special.
1: I mean it sounds awesome, right? But I can just imagine the looks on people's faces when you go right, <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to have 3 days in Miami. Yeah. It's going to be cooking lessons. How do you sell this in?
0: <laughs> well, again, it is about how do we differentiate ourselves and how do we build these relationships that are just going to resonate with with our customers because you know, we have our multi-channel campaigns and a lot of what we do in these days is much more digital investment. And yes, you know, our senior management team did take a little bit of, <laughs> of, of, um, of convincing, but once they started to get the idea of what we we're trying to deliver and then when they actually saw it on the day, I think their minds were, were pretty much blown, which is which is fantastic. So it makes it so much easier to do the next one. It's always the first one that, you know, people can't quite imagine what this is going to look like or or how it's going to feel for the attendees. Now we've done one. It's it's much, much more easy. You know, we've got all the great content from the first event to really build on for yeah, the second. Yeah,
1: totally. And there's also, there's also I think, some preconceived ideas about corporate events and the fact that they yeah. can be a bit dry. And I think, oh, yes. you know, trying to breathe some life into them and make them more interesting and exciting, obviously, is, is definitely the way to go. Yeah. Good. So, okay. So, we're going to move on to sort of gluttony, well, we've sort of moved gluttony and greed together here. And this is this kind of, it feels like this ravenous appetite that the marketing industry has for just more, right? Mm -hmm. For that's more leads, more data, more content, more events, you know, whatever it is, the assumption that basically more is going to be better. How do you challenge what you're doing and how do you, you know, not stretch yourself too thinly and not measure everything because not everything's important? I mean, what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, since I've joined uh, S&P Global Market Intelligence just over a year ago, I would say, you know, our big focus was lead generation and There was just, you know, every question was, how do we get more leads, more leads? How do we do more emails? We need to send an email a day. We need to have more events.
1: I I can can hear all the heads nodding as they're listening to this from all our listeners.
0: Uh, How do we do more (laughs) with the same budget and the same amount of people, you know? So it's it's finite resources we're all working with as well. And I think what we really tried to pivot away from is just sheer volume um, and much more about quality versus quantity. And I'm now trying to reterm lead generation opportunity generation for next year just to really try and change the mindset of not only the marketing team, but also our stakeholders and our colleagues in other groups so that they're not just seeing, you know, numbers on a spreadsheet, which is the leads that come in and they sort of feel like, it's just a processing job that they have to do. Whereas this is much more about, well, we're actually trying to provide you with opportunities to close. Yeah. This is this is really important that what we do turns into revenue and it, it drives momentum. Otherwise, you know, why, why are we doing what we do?
1: I suppose that also plays into the fact. I mean, every salesperson will tell you not every lead is, is equal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and and yeah. so it actually plays into the, the sense of what's the scale of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but from one opportunity to the next.
0: Absolutely. And I think we're trying to understand that much more now by doing a bit more segmentation and tailoring to certain types of leads, types of companies, types of individuals, where we're seeing a higher propensity of success. And and I think next year is going to be really pivotal. Uh, 2020 should, should really see us kind of just shift some of our metrics as well, so that we're really focused on providing those opportunities into the pipeline and into overall into closed revenue and renewals of customers as well, which is just as important.
1: And on the front of metrics, a conversation that we're having a lot at the moment, I think the kind of industry is really is about the kind of the tension between short and long term metrics. Mm. You know, how do you keep an, that, that eye on the horizon line yeah. whilst having to sort of do the the business of making money today? Yeah. Uh, so are you addressing that at all? And, and how, are you finding any success there?
0: So the first thing that we're always measured against, to your point, is more of the short term Lead generation, soon to be called opportunity generation, um, and and really kind of to drive that that short term revenue goal that is is incredibly important every quarter, every year. You know that's what we're we're looking at and we're, and we're measured on predominantly. However. We do also need to work on how we build marketing into the longer-term strategy of the business and how we help lead that as well. So if we look at, say, a three-year strategy, kind of what is the business trying to achieve and how do we align our resources to that, as well as understanding how we deliver against the short-term uh, revenue-related goals. So the longer-term goals are things like you know, being able to create fertile ground for future product launches that might be coming in the next year or two we need to warm the market up to to make sure that you know we're ready both internally and our customers are ready to hear from us about that when when we're ready to launch it's about getting our thought leadership out there it's about making sure that our experts are being positioned in lots of different ways in the market to to really show kind of the depth and breadth of our of our capabilities, our, our knowledge, our expertise, and, and the people that we have, which are actually one of our key differentiators as well internally. So there's all sorts of kind of other much longer term strategic projects as well. And I do have kind of different parts of my team now that are kind of aligned in that way as well. So we do have what we call segment marketing that work very, very closely with our commercial leaders around the world, that are really aligned to those commercial goals in the regions. But then we also have what we call product marketing and they are much more aligned to our product people who are building products for the future and really listening to the market and doing that research so that the product marketers can really get under the skin of that and drive that much more long-term revenue. But it is very, very important that, that both of those marketing groups work seamlessly together to be able to yeah, provide.
1: How, how, how do you get that to team. happen? How, how do you get them to work together? So
0: That's we're in kind of a matrix structure. So we're a matrix in a matrix, yeah. which is always interesting as well. But we actually had our first team offsite this year. And that was the goal. That was the ultimate goal of, of that offsite was to get everybody together. We've been through a change, a restructure. People have got new managers, new teams. So it was really about just getting that global coordination and global cohesion between our teams, working together seamlessly, communicating. So it was really about getting everybody familiar with each other, comfortable working with each other, and just knowing how to communicate better with each other as well. We did things like personality tests and coaching on communication. I have to say it made a huge difference. Again, yeah. just a, a, an investment into a, a face-to-face experience was, was really key.
1: It's funny, isn't it? I mean, for all the kind of fancy management theory and everything else, at the end of the day, getting people together in a room yeah. and teaching them how to build relationships and talk to one another is always the most effective thing to do. It really is. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, they are located in so many locations around the world. So I have team members in Buenos Aires through to Denver, New York, Perth in Australia, Shanghai, Singapore, Tokyo. And obviously London as well. So across different time zones, across different you know, continents, it can be challenging. So you do have to embed that into the team to be to, to achieve any kind of success.
1: Good stuff. So, um, well, that's a nice uh, sort of segue on to the last of our sins that we're going to look at today. And the final one of these sins is pride. Mm. And okay, so I think we're going to look at this in a slightly more positive light than just as a sin. So, talk to me a bit about about the pride you take in, in B2B marketing as a, as, a, as a whole, but also in light of the marketing you do in your career.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, pride is, is a sin. So I don't want to talk too much about how proud I am. <laughs> but um, it, it really is. And I think looking back over my marketing career, which has predominantly been in B2B, I just am proud of the teams I've developed and the experiences that, you know, we've delivered to customers, uh, the brands that we've built, and just the, the general kind of respect that we've managed to drive for marketing and really giving ourselves a seat at the table and a voice with our very senior stakeholders. I think having marketing leading an organization rather than, you know, maybe being a support function or or a a kind of secondary thought in, in the company is really important. So always something that I do really kind of take pride in, I guess. I think at the moment, though, what I'm really, really focused on, like I said, is is kind of delivering this exceptional differentiated customer experience. And one way we're trying to look at that is with our biggest customers or our most strategic customers in that we're looking at what everybody listening will call account based marketing. But when I found that when I was trying to engage the organization and give marketing that seat at the table and that voice around account-based marketing, there was just a bit of confusion and, and maybe just some glazing of eyes because the terminology account-based marketing really just made them think this is about what marketing's doing. And they didn't really understand what their role in that was or why that was important to them in, in a different function or a different team. So what I've actually done um, at the start of this year was to reterm that. And so, we now call it account-based engagement. It's another acronym for everybody to learn, but uh, ABE, as we now call it, has made its way across the organization, and it's really exciting, the kind of momentum that we're driving around that. So, the reason it's called account-based engagement is just because it's so much more about, it's a multifunctional approach. So, every single touch point that we have with our customers should always be exceptional, and we all need to work together to do that. So it's not just about the you know sales teams or the relationship managers it's about our senior executives it's about our customer service teams it's about our product specialists we have so many different people that go in and speak to customers or help customers and service customers and We've all got to do that in a in a coordinated way to feel like that trusted partner that we want to be to to our customers on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that's so important, right? Because uh, there is a temptation when you think about it being marketing that it becomes just another kind of communications channel. And yeah. you're you're so right here, which is this is far bigger than that. When you're starting to deal with the the way a client will see your business day in, day out. I've heard some interesting models on this recently, which is how you line people up from a kind of an incentives point of view. Mm. So have you started to think about the way in which people are incentivized and how that might direct different sorts of behaviors and, and how they relate to clients?
0: As we're going into 2020, I am looking at that very closely at the moment and trying to understand how we can really help the teams to drive the right behaviors. I think actually some of it is working with the relationship managers as well. So they lead the kind of relationship around the customer. And it's really understanding kind of what customer success looks like and putting some very specific objectives around that and account-based engagement um, strategy. And we've all got to come together to deliver that. In terms of marketing kind of incentives, I would love to be able to change those. You know, I'm going to look into it for sure. But I think as a whole group, or a strategic kind of group of, of multifunctional kind of colleagues, I think it's really important that everybody is at least aligned around goals and objectives rather than, you know, just everybody being incentivized in completely different ways. Mm-hmm. At least if they all have the same mindset and they understand what each other's roles are in driving towards those goals, then... They're more likely to be able to come together and have a coordinated conversation,
1: yeah, and maybe maybe there's a sort of a staged approach to this, which is that you know first stage is making sure that everyone's actually aligned against the same yes. objectives <laughs> and then the second stage is can you incentivize in such a way that means that when the team wins, everyone wins yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so and have you found anything that's been really successful in terms of driving this account-based engagement across so many different stakeholder groups. Has, been, has there been anything you've tried or done that's that's really proven successful in terms of uh, influencing such a wide range of people?
0: Yeah, so I've tried to sort of use the internal constructs that we have to be able to spread this message and to get the buy-in and engagement. Um, so I'm part of something that we call the Commercial Steering Committee, which is a group of 12 leaders from, from across the commercial functions globally. We meet every two weeks, and I've made sure that account-based engagement is a tier one project for that group, which is great because that really does focus the minds of all of our commercial leadership team and and drives that through their own teams. The best thing I've done though is to engage our president Um, and she's she's phenomenal. She uh, is involved in so many, you know, that from... Obviously, the, the very strategic things that are going on with the company, but she is super uh, on point and sharp and will get involved in many other different projects as well. So obviously, when the boss is engaged and uh, wants to help, then other people tend to jump on board and uh, you can get that train moving a little bit faster as well. But with that, there does come a lot more responsibility because I've put my, you know, reputation on the line in a certain way, and and said to the president of the company, look, this is something I'm going to hold myself accountable to, and yes, I need your help, but I also need to have regular check-ins with her on that, give her regular updates and make sure that she's seeing success being driven. She wants to know how we're uh, meeting our objectives and how we're actually driving this differentiated um, customer experience as well. So it's, you know, w- with great power because great responsibility. <laughs> Can I use Spider-Man? Um, you know, so it, it's exciting, but uh, a great challenge and something I've really enjoyed driving this year.
1: Um, I, th- I think to finish it off, I'd re- I'm, I'm interested in sort of retracing our steps here right back to the start of our conversation, because I think what fascinates me is, you know, you you said you were sort of growing up in, in Yorkshire mm-hmm. and that you had this sort this kind of goal of getting into the sort of bright lights of the big city and into the financial industry. And, and yeah. you know, you've achieved that. And I, I'm just interested to know what you think, maybe what advice you would give for someone in, in a similar position, mm-hmm. what do they do?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think <laughs> if you can just find a way in, that is the hardest thing, I think. Um, I I reflect on this quite a lot um, in my current role and, and have done in the past, that I want to help to give other people opportunities that wouldn't necessarily be given them through their natural kind of position in the world. And I think that if you are willing to try and stand out and to be very clear about what you can offer and you are persistent and resilient, and you can add value to a role or a company and you can show the way that you can do that. And it doesn't need to be through experience or knowledge. You can be there. All the other things you know that are so important, such as a positive mental attitude, being energetic, being hardworking, willing to kind of try different things, get your hands dirty, just be an overall kind of great kind of resource for anybody to have on your team. I think that's super important and it's something I'm always looking for as well but I do think you know underneath all that there is a level of determination and resilience that you do have to show you are going to be knocked you know there are going to be no's there's going to be rejection you just have to keep going and keep grinding and keep hustling and like use those words but it's kind of true but it's it's so worth it when you get there you know i i do reflect now in that in the, just this past year i've had amazing opportunities to travel all over the world and meet people from so many different cultures and i just feel like my horizons have been broadened to, you know, a level I'd never really actually imagined when I first moved to London. So, I feel incredibly lucky, but I know it's also taken a lot of hard work to, to get here.
1: Well, Amy, that's a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode of The Seven Deadly Sins of B2B Marketing from Alma Bono, then please subscribe to the podcast, share with your colleagues, or even leave us a review. We welcome feedback. Please contact us at sins at omobono.com.